Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I am your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends or your network. It would be great for more people to be able to hear this, listen to this. Uh, It's been a blast to make. I love having these conversations and it would be great for others to be able to listen to this. Our guest today is Michael Cooper. He is the author of Ephesiology, um, does a lot of work at ephesiology.com. Michael and I have a great discussion about the Ephesian movement, um, the church in Ephesus, what happened with Paul and many others as they um, brought the word of the Lord to all of Asia in two years. It's pretty amazing what we see as the structure of leadership, the structure of what they have done within the church. Um, and how it compares to the culture that we have in American Christianity and Christianity around the world, and what we can do to bring back uh, that structure that we find in the early church. So here's my conversation with Michael Cooper. Enjoy. Michael Cooper, welcome to the Shifting Culture podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is <laughs> this is great. I'm looking forward to to, uh, to talking with you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you as well. And uh, I know you wrote a book, Ephesiology, uh, about the Ephesian movement. And uh, what are some of the things, as you were studying the Ephesian movement, as you were writing the book, uh, some things that everyday Christians may find surprising uh, in the Ephesian movement, something that you learned in the middle of it? Yeah, you know what? There were a, a few things that I did not anticipate learning as uh, I got into the the research for uh, th- this book. Um, it, basically, the the book just th- to set the scene is kind of taking a comprehensive look of uh, at what was going on in the city of Ephesus mm-hmm. during the New Testament period and. Um, and and it does that by looking at all of the documents that we have in the New Testament corpus, yeah. and uh, I mean we we have a a lot. Nearly half of the New Testament talks about the church in Ephesus. Wow! So doing a kind of a comprehensive uh, study of that, but weaving those t- texts together to tell the yeah. story of the church from beginning to the end, at least from what we know in in the New Testament. Um, and I think probably more than any other uh, subject matter, if you will, yeah. pertaining to that movement that surprised me more than others was the leadership structure uh, mm. of the movement. Yeah. You know, we, we were just talking about APEST and yep. we know about APEST. And so that's not so much a surprise um, as we know that that was critical in the growth of mm. the New Testament movement, the apostle prophet uh, evangelist, shepherd, teacher roles yep. that were uh, so critical in equipping uh, the saints to uh, do the works of ministry. But I think probably what was more surprising was the the relationship of those five yeah. with everyone else. Hmm. And I, I came to a conclusion that I was surprised that I I actually came to, and that was that much of the New Testament movement was a non-hierarchical movement, Mm. Uh, simply meaning that, you know, there weren't these special people called pastors and uh, and then everybody else kind of followed under them. Yep. 
um, but that they were they were peers among equals. Yep. Um, there was leadership. Clearly, there was leadership, and we see that in Ephesians four eleven and twelve, as well as in First and, and Second Timothy. Yeah. But it wasn't hierarchical. Mm. It, it was a non-hierarchical, um, very much peer uh, relational, um, as they trained and equipped the people for ministry. Wow. And what I think, uh, and I argue this in the book, that um, what the result was from that was that everybody viewed themselves as being involved in ministry, that yeah. they were all engaged. And, you know, we read, for example, in Acts chapter 19, two places in verse 10 and verse 20, when Luke writes that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Yeah. And the only way that that could have happened was for everybody to be equipped for ministry and everybody out uh, proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, you know, doing Jesus-y things uh, in Asia Minor. And wow. that can only happen, I think, in a structure that is non-hierarchical, mm-hmm. um, that is very peer-oriented, that still recognizes that there are gifted people and yep. they honor and respect those people and their gifts. And then, you know, they're empowering others for ministry to use their gifts. They're uh, inspiring them in difficult circumstances. They're entrusting them to, to disciple others and they're reminding them to proclaim the word. Yeah. I think that's so key and so important as I look at uh, the structure maybe of the American church where it's it's pretty hierarchical. It's like we have the paid pastoral staff uh, that they get to do the ministry uh, and people come to a service to be serviced, right, to spiritually. Mm-hmm. And then they go home and it's like hopefully something impacted their life and but we don't see a total transformation like we did, you know, in this Ephesian movement to see, you know, the word of the Lord has been heard by all of Asia Minor. Um, and I think also, you know, in that hierarchical structure up top, like studies have come out that, you know, I, I mean, one study came out, 29% of all pastors are, have thought about quitting recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so much pressure on a solo leader with like trying to service the spiritual lives of everybody in their congregation. Um, Have you seen anything that's been working in the States as far as like deconstructing this leadership, hierarchical leadership model into a a, like a non-hierarchical model? You know, there. I think right now there are nascent attempts to do this because, like you said, um, we're recognizing that a pastor-centric model isn't effective. Uh, where the the you know the vision and the mission of the church is all uh, led by the the pastor or yeah. a small group of of leaders. Um, you know, to be honest. Culturally speaking, we're in in the United States. We're kind of structured in such a way that um, hierarchy is important. Yeah, and uh, and positions of leadership and, and and the authority that those leaders have are important in our culture. Although, recognizably, uh, people are leery these days of any types of authority. But the structures are still there in our context. And so naturally, the church inherits uh, some of that structure just because of the culture mm-hmm. that it's a part of. Um, what, what's interesting in the context of the, the New Testament is, uh, you know, there was still a hierarchical structure in mm-hmm. regards to civil authorities, yeah. uh, the, the Roman Empire, and so forth. Um, and interestingly enough, and this was another surprising uh, discovery, if you will, uh, of the church in Ephesus, this bishop, elders, deacons, uh, mm-hmm. the leadership structure was borrowed from civil society. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was at some level hierarchical. But, but it, here's, here's the beauty of what Paul does. 
in in Ephesus is that he he borrows structures, but he redefines them. And so mm, he places greater value on the character of the people that are yep. in those leadership positions and that character being extended out to a Christological understanding of what leadership is. Mm. You know, Jesus yeah. came to seek and to save the lost. He came to serve the many. He, he came and uh, that changed what leadership looks like. Yeah. Uh, as he tells James and John, you know, the Gentiles did this but you're to do this. Yeah. And he gives us that model of, of washing the disciples feet. Mm. And so that changes everything in yeah. leadership uh, in terms of its function, but the form Paul still uses uh, the, the social form. He still uses mm. what, what we haven't done in the United States, I think. And, and um, I, I think this is pretty much across the, the world is that you know we still use the the forms yep. of uh, our culture, and we still use their functions, mm. and so we have this hierarchy. Whereas in the New Testament, it was a, a flat model of leadership, yep. um, and uh, and it was very much focused on being sure that everyone was equipped for ministry and that they. In, in the space that they occupied, that yeah. they were effective in their ministry. Yeah. And I mean, you've mentioned that, you know, Jesus serves many. Uh, there's all this, uh, this concept of servant leadership has been really uh, exciting for the church. Like the church is, has taken it on. And it seems like the, that there may be some misconceptions of, of service and servanthood uh, in the Bible and servant leadership. Is there any misconceptions there for us to, to glean from? Yeah. You know, I, interesting that you bring that up. I, uh, I think, I don't remember if I addressed this in this book or not, but um, uh, if we look at the whole idea of servant leadership and the uh, context in which it emerges in the 1960s and 70s with Robert Greenleaf, mm -hmm. Catholic theologian who uh, recognized that we were living in desperate times where we had examples of leaders that were not at all servants, yeah. uh, the political uh, the leaders, as well as other social and civic leaders. And he was deeply concerned with, with what he was seeing in culture. And so he argued for this idea of servant leadership out of a particular cultural context yeah. that uh, was experiencing very desperate times. I mean, people were rebelling against leadership and authority and, and so on. And we have a number of, you know, those cultural examples mm -hmm. uh, in the context of the United States where this this kind of lends to the shift in our thinking about what leadership should be. Um, I, I think the um, uh, unintended consequence of what servant leadership has become is that uh, it doesn't any longer recognize the cultural constraints that gave rise to servant mm -hmm. leadership. So that's not to say that you know we shouldn't teach about servant leadership or right. or anything like that. But what it is to say is to understand that it doesn't matter what kind of leader you are or, or uh, where you are leading. If you are a follower of Christ, you are to be a servant. Hmm. And so, right. in a very technical biblical sense, um, there are servants and there are leaders, and all leaders are to be servants. Yeah. Um, and there's really not such a thing as servant leadership. Mm. I, I think sometimes when we put adjectives in front of nouns, we kind of uh, d diminish the, the impact that the noun should have. Yeah. And so we want leaders and we want strong leaders, uh, leaders who uh, are passionate about equipping others for ministry that are uh, inspiring others by being models themselves, mm -hmm. you know, much like Paul was, who would say, follow me like I'm following Jesus. Yeah. Um, they'd be imitators of God. 
And, uh, and so we need those kinds of strong leaders, but we also need leaders who understand that they are servants, yeah. that it's not about them, but um, it, it's really a, about others. And Paul, I think, just beautifully models this in his leadership, where he, he seems to be pushing out his authority yeah. and uh, his, his leadership to others. And uh, you see this, I think, probably most remarkably with Timothy. You know, they co-author yep. seven epistles together wow. out of the 13 that he writes. And uh, and he gives Timothy just incredible opportunities to be in leadership yeah. in Philippi and uh, Thessalonica and Ephesus and and uh, other places as well. And, and so, you know, that kind of leadership that mm. is saying, you know what? I'm entrusting you yeah. with the gifts that God has given you. Fan those things into flame, and uh, and I'm going to be alongside of you, mm-hmm. joining with you in all of your suffering and and all of your trials, but all of your achievements as yeah. well. I think that's that's important for us to to realize, and I think moving, you know, that leadership is important, and all leaders should be servants. We should serve others. We should equip others for the ministry. Um, a lot of times when I've seen like this uh, inverted triangle, when you're thinking of servant leadership and, you know, leaders are down below serving up towards something else. Um, you know, as I think about that, sometimes I think of of Atlas holding up the world. And I think of, man, are we like calling ourselves like Greek gods? Like we have the power mm-hmm. to hold things up. And so sometimes I, I think that it actually becomes, because we have servant leadership, it almost becomes manipulative um, and we don't realize it. It's subconscious. Um, it's us trying to hold something up instead of share uh, leadership across the board. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. I mean, you're. I think in many ways the idea of servant leadership has become a, a more of a power dynamic. Uh, yeah. it, something that you know we tell others, I'm a servant leader, so you should follow me. Right. Or I'm a servant leader, therefore you know whatever. Um, but but what we see with Paul, as I mentioned, is it wasn't just him serving others, but him joining together mm-hmm. with others and others joining with him. I yeah. mean, it was a it was a partnership. Yeah. Um, on a very peer level mm-hmm. that they were uh, being called to in their following of Christ, and and this is I think important. You know, there was one leader that the New Testament missionaries uh, followed, and that was Jesus. Yeah. And they agreed on that. They knew what Jesus's mission was, mm-hmm. and they gladly joined together with others in that mission. And yeah. uh, I mean, if, if that were not the case, I can't explain the, uh, the astronomical rise of uh, Christianity, growth of oh, Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, in any other way. Yeah. And it is Jesus. And I think a lot of times we get in the way of Jesus um, in our structures and, you know, borrowing from from culture, trying to figure it out ourselves. I mean, we're, we, you know, our own hubris, something gets in the way of Jesus. How can we get mm. out of the way and let Jesus do the work and have this big move of God? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so critical. For sure. It's almost, I think sometimes that we might think that we can improve upon Jesus's mission um, <laughs> or yeah. on his vision for the right. church. And, and, uh, and we can't, I no. mean, it's really joining with him together, uh, suffering together um, for the cause of the gospel. And, and yeah. he's laid out what that looks like. And we just simply need to imitate him. And if we're all doing that, um, then praise the Lord. Yeah. You know, if we're if uh, we're following Him and and uh, God is using uh, that and and we're joining with Him in, in His mission, then boy, we should just celebrate what we all are uh, doing in in regards to following Him. Yeah, and 
you know, this may be something for for just, you know, the missionaries that I train or people trying to go out as missionaries. But as we a lot of times when we look at the New Testament and we think of missionary journeys, we think of Paul. um, But Paul wasn't alone. What kind of people did Paul bring with him? Um, And what are some of the roles that you saw while you were studying this Ephesian movement of, like, how do we get things started, how movement started? Yeah, so, you know, this was another one of the interesting things to learn about in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He had something like 26 people that he directly worked with in that uh, movement in Asia uh, that, that he was in personal contact with. So, for example, when he tells Timothy, and trust these things, uh, that, uh, that you've heard from me to others. Yeah. That's his That's his assumption that he is addressing to all of the people that he's working with. Mm-hmm. And so if all of these 26 are being entrusted uh, to take the things that they've learned mm. uh, to, and to teach others who will teach others, then you can see the dynamics yeah. of the movement right there. Um, but he, I mean, people came from all walks of lives. Um, there were business people, there were uh, uh, lawyers, there were doctors, uh, th- there were, um, you know, th- those who were slaves uh, yeah. and, and so on. And Paul, um, again, the beauty of his relationship with them was it was never as one who held authority over them, but that he looked at himself as a peer yeah. That they, they were doing this together. Now, that's not to say that he didn't have authority. He certainly did as an, as an apostle, but he didn't use that authority uh, because it would have been ineffective in a movement. Yeah. Um, it would have placed the burden on him to do these things. And so instead, he looks at these that were gathered ar- around him as peers and co-laborers. And uh, of course, he refers to them in that way uh, frequently. And one of the other things that was interesting too was the words he uses to describe many of these people. And they're translated. It's interesting. It's uh, the same word that's translated in different ways. And that word is diakonos. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were most familiar with that word in First Timothy chapter three when Paul talks about the the character of the deacons. But he uses that same word to describe himself. Uh, he uses it to describe Timothy, who's a servant. In fact, in chapter four, he tells Timothy, you know, be a good servant, be a good diakonos. I've just described wow. what this is. <laughs> yeah. Now be a good one. Hmm. And uh, he uses it to describe Jesus, uh, who's a servant, Hmm. um, and he uses it to describe other people that he worked with. And interestingly enough, though, the the English translation often will choose different words other than servant (laughs) or deacon uh, to describe those people. So, you know, Timothy's described as a minister, be a good minister. Um, uh, Phoebe. Uh, in Romans 16, who is described as a, uh, uh, a, a servant, not a deacon. She, the English yeah. translation uses the word <laughs> servant rather than deacon or minister. Right. And, uh, and so you have these kinds of interpretations that, that you know, come into our translations of the mm. English when we should be thinking of, and I and I don't think there's any good reason to uh, change the the meaning of that word uh, uh, due to the person that it's attributed to, but uh, we should look at all of them as working together as servants together, yeah. diakonos. And the the interesting thing, Joshua, that I found here was as I was studying this and the people that. Paul referred to as servants or diakonos, they they served in positions of apostles, prophets, evangelists, mm. shepherds, and teachers. Mm. And boy, I just found that fascinating. Yeah, you know these these weren't deacons who were taking care of the menial tasks of a church. <laughs> yeah. You know, they weren't emptying the waste baskets. They weren't collecting the tithes and offerings, you know, they weren't doing these kinds of things, but these were people that were significantly 
engaged in equipping the saints for works of ministry. Mm. And um, I, I just, I mean, that was a, a revolutionary for me yeah. as I think about uh, the New Testament church. Yeah. To be able to have people within every every function that Jesus gave uh, to the church, the body of Christ, to be able to be serving in that um, did you find, uh, how did those people within the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers interact together uh, so that they could create something more holistic? Yeah, you know, that type of interaction, just because of the nature of the written documents, you don't see as much. Mm, right. um, you know, you don't see apostles interacting with shepherds or teachers and mm-hmm. those types of things. But what you do see is the interaction of people as a body of Christ, Mm. that that there was a real understanding that, you know, we were were all equally gifted, we're gifted in different ways, but those giftings are important. And of course, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 12. And so because they're important, then we all have a role to play together in the body of Christ to work toward the fulfillment of God's mission. Mm. And certainly you see that uh, throughout the writings of, uh, especially the Pauline epistles. And it seems like throughout uh, the, the centuries, since this movement happened and we continue in Christendom and now, and the church changes and it morphs in it uh, with culture. And we put on uh, the essentials of church, uh, different cultural aspects. So the church in America is going to look different uh, than the church um, in China or the church in Africa. Um, and so what are some of the the things that we have put on? Um, I'll, I'll go with the, the American church, maybe even American evangelicalism. Um, what are some of the things that we have put on that we need to shed to get back to what we see uh, in the New Testament, mm. you know, uh, Joshua, I'll be bold enough to say that that uh, uh, the, the, these cultural forms, uh, the, yeah, absolutely, we we uh, are wearing them, but we've also exported them. Yes, and uh, <laughs> like you, I've traveled a bit, a good bit of the world, and uh, I'm always surprised when I walk into a church, and it doesn't matter where it is but how uh, uniform it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's usually a, a pastor standing behind a pulpit. I, I mean, I can remember walking into a church in, in Nepal mm. uh, years ago and, uh, and, you know, just thinking that this is going to be a beautiful cultural experience. Right. Uh, the church was made out of bamboo and mm. there were, you know, mud was packing the walls to keep the wind out and the cold out. It, we were sitting on the floor on on carpets, and uh, as I sat and waited for the the service to begin, I uh, was making some observations, and there was a drum set in the front, yeah. <laughs> an electric guitar, an amplifier. There was a Christmas tree. It was in November wow. when I was there. Um, there was a Christmas tree, and in English, it said "Merry Christmas," <laughs> and I thought, "Holy cow!" <laughs> Um, what have we exported yes. to other countries that uh, gives them the impression that this is what the New Testament church looks like? Yeah. And so I think there are a number of, of cultural forms that, um, you know, for good or bad, right or wrong, that we need to rethink. And I think it begins with leadership um, and the leadership structure of of. The, the North American church for yeah. sure, but we see this in, in other places as well. Oh yeah. But, um, and you know, as you've been involved with 5Q and the, the APEST uh, typology, that that really is where we need to recover a, a good understanding of the New Testament church yep. and see the, the apostle, the prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, roles uh, fully functioning in the context of the church. You know, we've placed such a great emphasis on the shepherd and the teacher. Yep. And, um, and, and what has resulted is that we've, we've created churches that are 
uh, the very heavy in the shepherd teacher yep. roles, uh, which are absolutely needed in the mm -hmm. church today. But there's a, a whole gift set, the, the apes that yeah. we often talk about, that is catalytic in nature that we desperately need in the church today. Uh, those who can take the gospel and effectively engage the community uh, with the message in, uh, in catalytic ways. Um, so we, we, I think we really desperately need to recover um, th that apest yeah. typology in the context of, of the church. I think too, I, I mean, if I were to think more about this and of course, <laughs> these are things that I do anyway, yeah. um, you know, the, along with that, the pastor centric model, um, mm -hmm. I, I think has seen its day. Um, yeah. again, I think this goes to the, the need for us to recover apest, I think the program-centric uh, nature of the church that really demands professionals to perform uh, specific duties, yeah. uh, whether it would be children's ministry or music ministry or or something of that nature, um, that would that has to shift as well. Yeah. Uh, again, pushing the the roles of ministry out to uh, all of us who yeah. are ministers. Uh, the, the body of Christ. And then I think thirdly, the, the building centric uh, nature yeah. of the church has to change where um, we need to get away from the, the place of ministry happening. Uh, mm -hmm. And even in some churches, the place of discipleship happening in, in a, in a, a building, a centralized place yep. and see that really pushed out to uh, be decentralized and and into more locations yeah that's really key uh, the local church that i attend um, about a year before the pandemic hit uh, jesus asked us to give up our building um, and we became nomadic as a as a church we uh, were we had house churches, different house churches that we split up into. Um, we have house church leaders, and we come together now once a month as a larger corporate gathering, but we are in the homes uh, the rest of the time. Um, and this this model has really was very key and vital for us to be healthy when COVID hit and the pandemic hit and people went inside and the majority of churches went from um, a program in person on a Sunday morning to a program online on a Sunday morning. And it really didn't shift much. And a lot of people, I think, were lonely. Uh, they didn't get this connection that they needed in true, authentic community. And we were able to see this, uh, this uh, sustainability happen because of the model that we have almost stumbled into. I mean, we're trying to, to go and be... Um, be obedient to Jesus in the midst of things and let him lead us into whatever he wants us to do. And so mm -hmm. I think it was a testimony to um, leaders in the church that were listening to Jesus and saying, okay, we'll do that. Um, and it makes no sense, but this is what we're going to do. And so they, they walk forward. And I think that that uh, needs to continue. And I think there's a few things that that are missing in the middle of that. Um, and one of the things um, is this this desire and the structure for um, for like solid teaching in the middle of what we're doing. Um, mm. You know, we do a lot of discovery, um, and we're doing discovery Bible studies on a Sunday morning um, within our home church. And you know, this is what I teach when I go overseas, and we want to do discovery Bible studies to start and to start movements, so that everybody can really grasp Scripture um, and then find out for themselves. It's not reliant on foreigners as they come in. Um, but what is that role of of teaching, and how can we implement implement this in a decentralized network? Mm. You know, I've, this is something that I, I am giving a lot of thought to because I do, I agree with you. I think, you know, COVID has given us a wonderful opportunity to explore different structures and models 
that can be effective in our cultures. And I, I think one of the things, as you alluded to, that um, has seen real fruit is uh, us being forced into small groups, into our homes, and and seeing that decentralizing and, and moving us away from a building-centric model. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, as you said, there are so many now that are rushing back to that old paradigm. Yep. And, uh, and for whatever reason, uh, uh, are just kind of doing what they did and, and, uh, and going back to the status quo. And I think we miss an opportunity there. Um, you know, I, in relationship to that, I think looking again at the movement in Ephesus, you know, Paul spent two years or so teaching in what was called the school of uh, Tyrannus. Yep. It, we don't know anything about that school <laughs> other than it was a philosophical school. Uh, the Tyrannus uh, can be translated into English as tyrant. So uh, <laughs> it could have been a pejorative way to refer to whoever the headmaster of that school was, that he was a tyrant, an educational yeah. tyrant. Uh, we just don't know. But what we do know is Paul saw that as a place to equip uh, and train, as well as discuss and dialogue and engage the yeah. culture. And uh, th that we have to recover yeah. um, in the church. And so in that place, whatever that would look like today, is a place where I see equipping and training of the saints for yep. works of ministry to take place. In some ways, um, you know, Paul modeled his ministry after the philosophers. Uh, you know, I always say Socrates now, thanks to Bill and Ted, but uh, <laughs> Socrates. And uh, when Plato wrote about Socrates, he said that Socrates saw his classroom as the streets of Athens. And so there's there's something to, to say about that, that yeah. we need to be looking at the marketplace as our place of engaging and equipping mm -hmm. and, and training the saints, mm -hmm. not just in a central uh, building, yeah. but dispersed at wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So uh, in many ways, it can be thought of in terms of taking the training to the marketplace. Wow. Um, if there are... It, you know, groups of business people yeah. uh, that can spare an hour for lunch to gather together to do equipping and training in, in their office space. That yeah. would be the perfect place to, to do that. Um, and so I think there's always going to be uh, a role for that equipping and training um, that is essential to yeah. ensuring that the church will continue in its historic uh, faith. Yeah, it seems like we probably have to do some reorienting around what is important, what is vital in our lives uh, as, you know, Americans like to run ragged um, and work really hard and they don't have time or energy to put into being with others in, the, in any ministry setting. Um, they're like, I pay somebody else to do it, let them do it. I'm going to run ragged and work really hard over here. So they're there's probably going to have to be some reorientation of our our life choices and our lifestyle choices so that this can be accomplished. Right. Yeah, and we need to adapt to that and adjust to to what our culture is uh, helping us to see. And one of the ways, Joshua, that we've done that is through. Um, what we've called physiology master classes, mm -hmm. and you, you can see behind me. This is my studio, <laughs> yeah. where uh, I uh, where I do my recording of different courses. Um, but we have a, a team of academics from all around the world that are joining together to record some high quality, uh, um, academically rigorous. Uh, but accessible courses that are focusing on helping the church to have a good, mm -hmm. solid uh, foundation on its uh, historic faith mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and to build on that. And we've modeled this really around the APEST model. We want to see more people equipped 
um, as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's so good. Um, who can equip others for yeah. for ministry? Yeah, that's helpful to be able to to go there. And so, yeah, if what you go to ephesiology.com, you can find that, right? You can, or to masterclasses.ephesiology.com. Nice. There you go. And I think, you know, that's going to be really essential to be able to be equipped uh, wherever you're at. And I think this is something as a dispersed model that's been working well, that we've been able to get training and equipping out uh, in different ways. I have, uh, you know, when my wife and I lived in the Middle East for, for, a long time when we worked with Syrian refugees and, you know, we we were able to get some discovery Bible studies and the New Testament um, in a spoken Arabic language. It wasn't a classical Arabic language. It was actually spoken Syrian dialect. Um, so as we got these recordings, we were able to put them on SD cards um, and there were there were a ton of them that we could just hand out to people. And they could take those and they could facilitate a discovery Bible study with their friends and their family. And they didn't need us to be able to do it. And they were that was something that they were able to be equipped by. So there's mm. all sorts of, of models of taking some training that we can actually equip somebody for the next generation and the next generation. And it could go on without us. And I think because of some of these this these little cards that we we had that we were able to just plug into cell phones you we actually saw a generational growth like second third mm -hmm. fourth fifth sixth generations going down the line because people are just passing it along and they're they're obeying whatever they heard um and it was pretty amazing that that sort of technology that we have at our disposal right now can be actually used uh, to actually further the kingdom of God. Um, and I think we're starting to catch up. Um, I don't think we've been good at it uh, for a while, but I think we're starting to catch up and we're able to yeah. equip in this space. So it's been really good. Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, I also think when I was thinking of, of your story and I think of uh, adapting a, a leadership model, if you're looking at, you know, bishops and elders and deacons, it really reminded me of uh, the American military um, and it, it just as like a model of leadership. Um, and it seems like we've taken, we've started to really, I mean, take this, this militaristic model um, and put it on top of the church. Uh, of saying, you know, this top-down hierarchical thing. Um, and I think you know, some of those things, we're, there's a balance in here of being, being culturally um, appropriate and taking the culture that we should into church and being countercultural. Um, and so what is that balance of being countercultural um, and taking something from the cultural so it's relevant to everyday life for the people that we have in church anywhere in the world. Yeah, well, I think that the, the lens that we should look through on all of those things is a Christological lens. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the four gospels that give us a beautiful picture of Jesus and his life and how he lived his life. Yeah. And if we were to look at leadership through his lens uh, if we look at relationships through his through that lens, uh, if we look at how we interact with the culture in general through a Christological lens, then then we're going to have a better understanding of the contextual nature that we need to yeah. uh, strive for uh, in regards to the 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 forms that uh, our churches or our ministries will take. Um, but it's always looking at uh, the, our model and, and that being Jesus um, as our anchor for how we will um, adapt different forms to the functions that we learn from his life. Yeah. I, you know, I've been reflecting a lot recently on John, uh, 12, 24, unless a, a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then 
Jesus continues on, like you, you know, whoever loses his life will find it. Like you have to to lose your life and follow me. And for me, what that little grain of wheat represents is, I mean, it's my ego. It's you know my everything that I want to accomplish, my selfish ambition. Um, but if that that dies, and I can say, Jesus, do something with this seed. It can bear fruit, and I could start to follow him. And I think a lot of times we need to look through that Christological lens to be able to to bear fruit and mm. to to move forward in a in a fruitful way. Because if we don't, you know, it's just in our own strength. It's just in a in, in a place where we're going to we're going to be alone in it. Um, and through that Christological lens, you know, I it it says that. We're bearing much fruit. I mean, we're doing it together. There's a togetherness in a Jesus-centric model, and there's an aloneness in a you know in a human-centric model. Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's I, good. I found that that fascinating. I've just been been thinking about that. Um, you know, Michael, thank you for for this. This has been fascinating for me and been really good. Uh, there's two questions I like to ask at the end. Um, number one is if you could go back to your 21 year old self, what advice would you give? Oh man. Oh, <laughs> well, gosh, my 21 year old self. Uh, th- thankfully I was still in college. You know what? I would, the advice that I would give myself and I probably still wouldn't take it, yeah. uh, it would be, you know what? You need to chill a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your intensity, your passion uh, is not always a good thing. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think really to, to, to be honest, I think that would probably be a, a good thing to relax a little bit, to, you know, yeah. enjoy uh, the proximity of Jesus in, mm. in my life uh, more and uh, don't rush so headlong into yeah. things um, the, you know, by throwing caution to the wind or, or whatever. <laughs> That's great advice and uh, all, something that we should all take. Um, anything that you've been reading or watching lately that you could recommend? Well, the, 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 what I'm working on right now is uh, a study of First Clement. <laughs> and uh, First Clement was written, I, I think, it's, many scholars will date First Clement to the uh, end of the first century, uh, to somewhere in the 90s, sometimes around 97 AD. Mm-hmm. Um, I think First Clement was probably written within a uh, the living memory of Peter and Paul's uh, martyrdom in Rome. So I, I would date it into the late 60s, maybe into the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting letter. Um, early on in the history of the church, it was actually included as a part of the New Testament corpus because it was so valued. Um, it's 65 chapters long. Wow. And uh, it's it's just a beautiful testimony about how one church, the church in Rome, uh, is so deeply concerned about the church in Corinth. Hmm. And uh, it's given the, the title, First Clement, uh, probably, well, it was given the title later, but many had attributed the letter actually being written by Clement. But the evidence, the internal evidence of the letter, suggests that it was written by uh, the leaders of the church in Rome to uh, the church in Corinth, who was still experiencing, uh, well, actually, it looks like there was a period of peace in the church in, in Corinth. But at this time, there, there are factions that arise. And, uh, and so the church of Rome is hearing about this. They are so deeply concerned for the witness of the church in Corinth because it, it wasn't just the factions within, yeah. but it was the turmoil that was being caused w- from without as non-Christians were looking at the church in Corinth and saying, you know, what, what is this? <laughs> These people are no different than we are. Uh, yeah. Um, and so the, those leaders in Rome were so concerned. But anyway, I, I'm doing this uh, study and trying to understand more about the practices of the early church yeah. and uh, how 
important it was for there to be harmony among believers. Um, and, you know, it, the, the conclusion that I'm coming to in this study is that what ultimately achieves harmony is, uh, are two things. Mm-hmm. One, our sole focus on Jesus. Uh, if we are solely focused on him, then we cannot help but to live yeah. in unity with one another. And then secondly, our mission. If we're focused on Jesus and focused on his mission, you know what? We're going to welcome people yeah. to join us. And we were, we are going to want to join with others mm-hmm. who are sharing those, those, uh, th- that focus on Jesus and focus on his mission. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important for yeah. us today as a church um, to rediscover how uh, significant a life dedicated to Jesus is and dedicated to his mission and how unifying and harmonizing that is among all of us yeah. who call ourselves followers of Christ. All right. So we know uh, ephesiology.com to find out some some of your work. Any other places or any other thing that you've worked at, on that you want to highlight for us? Yeah, how so, we so, find it? Yeah, ephesiology.com. Uh, the, the book is Ephesiology, the study of the Ephesian movement. And yeah. William Carey Publishing is the publisher for that book. Um, it, we do the masterclasses.ephesiology.com that we're partnering with a number of different organizations, 5Q, of course, being one of them, yeah. that, along with Creo and, and others, um, to uh, offer a master's program, a master's degree program. Uh, from uh, a seminary in India, Mission India Theological Seminary. And so, yeah, there are a number of resources there for people to enjoy, and many of them are free resources. So I'd encourage people to click on those free uh, courses that uh, I'm I'm sure, because I know the people that are developing them will be a real blessing to others. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, for being on. It was a privilege. Uh, It's my privilege as well. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.